Is it cold in New York now? Is it cold yet? It was snowing today. First time all year. Wow. Congratulations. That's that's an early one for New York. It was unannounced. Just started happening. Weather Channel app was like 0% chance of precipitation today. What were you wearing if you've even been outside today? Uh, I have, I don't I think it's like a older Woolrich. It's like a 30, 60, that's what they call it. I don't know. It's a down, down jacket, waterproof exterior without like the 60, North 40 fa- jacket. There it is. Yeah. Without the North face, like Nupsy mm-hmm. on the outside. That's on the inside of this one. Yeah. Got a hood. I don't really know what to call it. It's like a little longer than than your standard Nupsy, but not much longer. Proved a good good coat. If you had to start stripping features off of it, what would you lose first? Oh man, that's a tough one. Does it have like a hood? Does it have pockets? Does it have a drawstring? Yeah, it's got all the things you mentioned, all of which I treasure. Stormcloth cuffs included. There's these like interior pockets that I don't use that much because I'm not opening it all that often, but I feel like that's a cop-out answer. Mm-hmm. Probably the hood because I can wear something with a hood underneath it is what I'll go with. Okay, the hood. You would you would keep the drawstring before the hood. I like the drawstring, and I I also have a old TSS like wool winter coat that I wear a lot that doesn't have uh, a hood, and it doesn't really impact me all that often. Fair choices, fair choices. But what we're gonna get into today is you know if you had to take an item that you loved. And strip it down to less than that. Well, where would you go? Maria Kondo, the, the shit out of an item that you loved. Mm-hmm. Or back, go back to your uh, Coco Chanel quote of you know the add all your features, take one off. It's got to be the hood. Or you got to take like six off because it's World War Two. Welcome back to Heddle's Blowout, the one and only denim history show that does not end. My name is David Chuck. My name is Reed Nelson. And we're talking about denim and the history thereof. And we're going to talk about jeans going to war this episode, which, ugh, ah, good God, y'all, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Say it again. I don't want to do the up part. Okay. <laughs> but even thinking about it, wearing jeans on a battlefield just feels kind of perverse when you think about it. In if you caught our episode with Chris Danforth about Navy SEALs wearing Levi 501s in Vietnam, the utility of denim mining gold or running a locomotive translated pretty well also into killing people. And when we last left off, jeans were just starting to go to work for the government. Uh, planting trees, building roads and schools, and helping drag the United States out of the Great Depression. Of course, we're talking about the Civilian Conservation Corps and the other New Deal programs that put young men in jeans to help rebuild the country. But while the U.S. was trying to stir up economic activity via self-improvement, in other parts of the world, the solution to the Global Depression was imperialist military expansion, which, you know, the U.S. did a lot of that too, but... um, I feel like World War II was relatively just. Yeah, we waited. We we waited. <laughs> waited and baited. Better than the ones, plural, that we're currently in. <laughs> yeah, I'd agree with that. 
I mean, at least there was the main. Yeah. Was there. Yeah, I mean, I can't believe I'm saying better. Um, <laughs> but it was the context was justified, so. Um, um, but yeah, no, absolutely. This is, of, but, of all the ones, we, we got attacked. Yeah. Was it, while the U.S. was trying to work its way out by making national parks and building schools, uh, Japan expanded into China, Korea, Southeast Asia, and the South Pacific, Italy into East Africa, Germany into Czechoslovakia, Austria, and Poland. And uh, this is World War II, which the United States of Denim entered almost 80 years ago on December 7th, 1941, when the Japanese Imperial Navy attacked an American naval installation at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. Over the next four years, millions of Americans deployed to both the South Pacific and European theaters of World War II, and many of them brought denim with them, and many more put it on for the first time at home, and jeans themselves would never look the same again. Attention, blowout listeners. Stop by the Heddle Shop for a wide assortment of sweaters, knits, and Teamster tees available in the newest colors and styles. Our denim tops and jeans for men's and boys are made in USA and are available in a rainbow of colors at a low heddles price. Visit shop.heddles.com and use the code BLOWOUT for a special listener discount. The story of military uniforms could fill its own podcast, and I'm sure it has. But we're going to be focusing specifically on the denim uniforms issued by the military during World War II. There was some use of denim in American uniforms as early as 1908 that found evidence of the Coastal Artillery Corps, uh, which was coastal sea defense of the United States, that they, they list having the number 995 coat, blue denim and trousers blue denim, as their standard uniform. The Coastal Artillery Corps, they like basically put up a bunch of giant howitzers along the coast and like on Long Island in case anyone tried to send a bunch of big ships at the U.S. And uh, they had their own exceptional uniforms, it seemed, because uh, they did it because they worked on water and the blue denim was a pseudo camouflage. Don't have really like anything to back that up except other people theorizing on the Internet, but they seem to be the first people in the United States military to start wearing denim. Did they remove the howitzers or are they just sort of like lingering? The I think the guns are gone, but like the the bases and the installations are still there. If you ever go out to Montauk and go to Camp Hero, uh, like right at the end of the uh, of the island, like at the very tip of Long Island, you can see all of the gun encampments that they used to have there. It's a very spooky, weird place, and it's also like there's a lot of conspiracy theories surrounding it that uh, they think that there was some like experiment in the 1980s. Where they tried to open a portal between like Montauk and Philadelphia, and it let out a demon that was the basis of Stranger Things. Wait, what? Yeah, Camp Hero. I mean, that's a that is a classic portal—the one between <laughs> Montauk and Philadelphia. But how did they tie the Stranger Things demon into it? Oh, th- like that's what Stranger Things is based off of—is apparently like this experiment that supposedly happened between Montauk and the Navy Yard in Philadelphia. That's the. That's the lore surrounding Camp Hero, where there used to be the Coastal Artillery Corps that used to wear jeans. Potentially ocean camo. Yes, potentially ocean camo. 
where did the Japanese uh, denim that was used for the Japanese military uniforms that were advertised for children? <laughs> that one I haven't gotten to the bottom of. <laughs> yeah, from the the uh, cowboy episode of uh, Japanese denim military uniforms. So that that's uh, maybe another deep dive we can do later. But the the military uniforms that were used in World War II were largely based off of the same uniforms that were used during the Civilian Conservation Corps that we talked about last episode. And that was a trial run for denim at a wide scale. So like if you remember, three million uh, young men wore denim work uniforms between 1934 and 1942. And the denim uniform in greatest circulation in the American military in World War II was just a rebadge of that CCC one. Um, so if you remember the 6-124A and the 6-125A denim work shirt and trousers of the CCC became the M1937 work shirt and trousers of the U.S. military. Pretty much the exact same thing. If you look at pictures of them side by side, it's the exact same like popover denim shirt and like patch uh, front and back pockets like denim chino uh, that everybody hated in the CCC. But they also got that Daisy May bucket hat that is very popular with repro people, or at least it was like five to 10 years ago. Yeah, Orslo makes a, just, they call it the Daisy May. That seems like a very Orslo thing to make. Yeah, I mean, it's probably to exact specifications. Hmm. Um, no one's checking them, but he, he, he probably, probably knocked that one out. Yeah. But just like everyone uh, in the CCC hated the uh, A or the 6-124A and 6-125A, people in the military hated them as well. So those were updated to the M1940 work trousers and work coat, which looked more like jeans with slash pockets and a coin pocket, and like a the jacket had a full placket up the front, and people seemed to like those a lot more. Do you think it had anything to do with the fact that the name is just way easier to say? What, M1940 versus M1937? No, the 6-124A. That's just a, a mouthful. Yeah. I mean, I guess that was what they were. Uh, I, I, I doubt that's what they referred to them as when they were wearing them of just like, soldier, get on your 6-124A and 6-125A uniform and get the hell out there and give me 20. Feels like they have some pretty rigorous uh, communication guidelines. They might have. Yeah. Keep it above code. But those denim uniforms were used for everything from construction to clothing prisoners of war. And some vintage models have PW written on them to show that they were put on prisoners of war. So, like, this is a thing that I was thinking about, that denim and denim clothing really hadn't made it out of the United States at this point. So if you were some, you know, Japanese or German prisoner of war that was brought back to the States or put in a prisoner of war camp, they put you in jeans and, a, like, a, a denim shirt. And that was your first encounter with that ever. I don't think it had the same connotations as like the dude ranch stuff did. No, not. uh, I don't think so. That hopefully they were not being used as uh, sex objects for wealthy American women. But, you know. Oh, I was just talking about status. But yes, absolutely. not. (laughs) That too. That too. It feels like the PW stuff would be pretty toxic on the vintage market. Is there like a weird crew that's like, I only want prisoner of war garb? (laughs) I only want things with like salt stained like tears. Yeah, uh, like, I, on them. Like if I was just like searching the racks and I saw PW, I'd be like, no, no, mm-hmm. bad vibes. 
The biggest consumer of denim garments, though, by far, was the U.S. Navy. Now, the Navy had used denim for some time, uh, as you know, as we mentioned above, with the Coastal Artillery Corps. That denim blue worked pretty well in the water. And uh, there's a telegram that we found that was sent to Levi's from Rear Admiral W. B. Young uh, in the U.S. Navy, Chief of the Bureau of Supplies and Accounts. And uh, he said, like, this is the guy who was, you know, responsible for ordering all the uniforms and, like, all the supply chain for the, all of the U.S. Navy. And he said here in 1944, uh, in every invasion, dungarees are the basic battle dress of our Navy blue jackets. Dungarees are the garments you see our men wearing in all combat photos, which shows American sailors uh, at their guns or passing the ammunition. To keep our fighting men supplied, the Navy now needs large additional supplies of these garments. Your efforts in producing Navy dungarees are just as vital as those of the workers turning out munitions of war. The Navy counts on your full cooperation so that none of our fighting men will be deprived of the dungarees they need. Say dungarees one more time, I dare you. Uh, I don't want to deprive anyone of the dungarees they need. But yeah, it's, it's, it's funny. The, the term dungarees, uh, I guess, was a thing that the, the Navy really liked. As they, they didn't call theirs trousers at all in the official specification of their uniform. They were called dungarees. It's one of those goofy words with serious applications. Mm-hmm. Like, like a dongle. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I was like, wait, that's not what they're called. And someone's like, no, that's check the site. If you've spent any time at all looking at vintage clothing, you've certainly encountered a Navy dungaree trouser. Um, they've got those two angled patch pockets in the front, two in the back, and they had ginormous Jinko level leg openings. Uh, and they think that like the uh, or the theory was that if you had larger leg openings, that uh, they wouldn't be as waterlogged as quickly and or you they would be easy to take off if you fell into the ocean. And then you ever do that thing in like swimming in high school where they teach you how to turn your pants into a flotation device? not was this a thing that we did in high school this is a thing that we did in colorado in high school which didn't make any sense to me because it was a landlocked state but yeah everyone had to take swimming and one of the things you had to do in swimming was like jump into the pool with your clothes on and then be able to like take off your jeans or pants or whatever and turn like tie the legs together and get them full of air so you could use them as a flotation device you had uh, done any background research to see where the teacher of this activity is currently? <laughs> see if it was sanctioned? <laughs> it was, I did, and it is uh, state mandated that everyone has to learn how to do this in Colorado. They got to jump into the pool in front of their peers and strip? Well, you wore, like, you wore your swimsuit underneath your jeans. It's not weird. <laughs> Whatever helps you sleep. Now that you mention it, yeah, one of the uh, the swim coach who was not the teacher of the swim class uh, was, was fired person? for sex. No, was fired for sexual harassment. It's not not signs pointing to good. <laughs> Stop putting this stuff together. <laughs> I don't want to think about this in my my youth. Moving on. Yeah, so they wore these dungarees. <laughs> A light blue denim chambray shirt, uh, or light blue chambray shirt with a white twill type hat that sort of looked like the, you know, in and out burger, like flat hat that like folds down. I don't know why they like those in the Navy, but th- that's what they were wearing. 
you've seen them a lot in Fleet Week if you have Fleet Week in your city. Oof. Yeah. Gosh. I um do not miss that part about New York. It was really big in San Francisco. New York, I I'm, imagine it, there too. it doesn't really happen in Bushwick. <laughs> <laughs> like, people are like, it's Fleet Week. I'm like, oh, yeah, I bet. The sailors don't make it out that far? Nope. We're on an island. <laughs> Aside from soldiers and other people enlisted in the military being issued their own denim, uh, people would also bring their own jeans along for the deployment. Levi's were available in military bases and uh, PX stores in Europe and the South Pacific, and this was the first time they were ever sold internationally, even if they were only being sold to other Americans, because before this time, Levi's jeans specifically were only sold west of the Mississippi in 11 states. So just a, a sort of a milestone of jeans' international reach at this point. And there are anecdotes of people also having their family send them jeans from home because they wanted them abroad if they weren't able to buy them at military bases. Oh, uh, they got one here from Bruce McKinnon, which was a Marine who had received three pairs of Levi's by mail while stationed in Hawaii. Uh, he had written his mother requesting the coveted jeans, and she scoured stores in search of them, eventually trapping down the hoped-for three. Bruce was delighted when the Levi's package arrived, and to keep them safe from the other Marines, he slept on all three pairs at night. Uh, from Hawaii, Bruce shipped out to Saipan, where he was photographed there for a story that ran in the newspaper. His mother recognized Bruce instantly thanks to his curly hair and his signature blue jeans. He was wearing Levi's with the cuffs turned up, uh, she later told a reporter. So, uh, yeah, you could recognize your child if you sent them jeans when they went off to war. And as far as I can tell, Americans were the only people wearing denim in World War II. And this was the first exposure for much of the rest of the world to encounter indigo blue denim, including those that were forced to wear it as prisoners of war. Uh, like Much of the work clothing in Europe was uh, bleu de travail. If you uh, know that like canvas or moleskin fabric dyed in that purpley blue benzoate color that was very popular like five years ago, those bleu de travail like chore coats. But uh, let's take a quick break and we'll be back to discuss how jeans jammed at home during this time period as well. For thousands of years, man has cultivated the fruit of the Sapindus mucorasi tree to wash their clothes. The emperors of China knew about them. The kings of India knew about them. Now, you know about them. Heddle's Denim Wash is a hypoallergenic and non-toxic laundry detergent made from these ancient plants. Heddle's Denim Wash protect your fades like the royalty they are. And we're back uh, to talk about denim working at home. So as we discussed in our Made in USA episode, the United States was almost entirely spared the domestic destruction of World War II. As such, America produced a lot of the war materials used by the Allied powers. A uh, couple you know, statistics here just with regards to aircraft manufacturing, which uh, the United States was 41st in the world of building aircraft in uh, 1939, and they went to number one in five years by the end of the war. Like in 1939, they had an output of 3,000 planes, and by the end of the, the war, the United States has produced 300,000 planes. So an increase of a hundredfold, which 
you know, it makes sense for us to have the crown because we kind of invented the airplane. Yeah, there was a complete retooling of American industry to support the war effort. And this was largely why the Allies won World War II. Uh, William S. Knudsen, who was an automotive industry executive who made the, uh, he was the chairman of the Office of Production Management and member of the National Defense Advisory Commission by the Roosevelt administration to organize war production. So like this was the guy that sort of turned all of America's like other industry into making like tanks and bombs and uh, uh, aircraft and things like that. And he said, we won because we smothered the enemy in an avalanche of production, the likes of which he had never seen nor dreamed possible. Which, you know, that guy probably has a bit of a uh, chip on his shoulder to claim production was the reason that the war was won. Um, But still, it's an incredibly impressive amount of uh, manufacturing output that happened between 1939 and 1945 in the United States. But just as much as all these assembly lines had to be redone, a lot of people had to uh, learn how to make this stuff at the same time, and a lot of new people were in the factories doing the production. While the typical demographic that worked in industrial manufacturing, young men, were off at war, others stepped up to build the war machine. And uh, that was like 16 million people that served in the U.S. Armed Forces in World War II that otherwise would have been you know, able-bodied to do uh, manual labor in factories like this. And women specifically were crucial to the war effort. As uh, between 1940 and 1945, uh, the age of Rosie the Riveter, a uh, female percentage of the U.S. workforce jumped 10 points from 27% to nearly 37%. And by 1945, nearly one out of every four married women worked outside the home. It's just a really, really big change in gender dynamics that happened like while uh, men, a lot of men were out of the country fighting the war, that you know, uh, more than 310,000 women worked in the U.S. aircraft industry in 1943, which was 65% of the industry's total workforce, which is up from you know, 1% in the pre-war years. So just like it's a complete sea change here in terms of the people that were doing this kind of work, being trained in this kind of work and existing in these environments, and also wearing new working clothing. So if you think of uh, Rosie the Riveter, just uh, imagine that in your head, Reed. What's Rosie the Riveter wearing? She got the bandana. Yep. She got the rolled up, like, chambray denim looking shirt. Uh Uh-huh. Got a flexing forearm. Yeah, kind of Snow Whitey hair, right? Is that is that wrong description uh-huh. of the style? I don't know. My eyes are always caught by the red bandana. Yeah, that's uh Those are the things that I remember most because we only get the top half, right? Do we get the bottom half? I only remember. I don't the, believe so. I think we just get the top half. That's the iconic image. Yeah, chambray bandanas uh, workwear. They were also wearing jeans. That uh, got a anecdote here from Phyllis Gould who worked in the shipyards in Richmond, California, and dressed for work every day in Levi's 501s as a journeyman welder. got a quote here. Levi's jeans protected me from the welding sparks. She said, I was never burned wearing Levi's. Phyllis Gould is just an elite tier 1940s name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just like, it's, it's like, it's almost like generated. Perfect. So all the consumption for the war effort meant cutbacks in other areas of the consumer economy. As every available scrap of metal and every inch of fabric was being turned into a bomb or a parachute, and this created the era of rationing. 
Oh, uh, on August 28th, 1941, President Roosevelt issued Executive Order 8875, which created the Office of Price Administration, or the OPA. And uh, the OPA's main responsibility was to place a ceiling on the price of most goods and to limit consumption by rationing. That would not go well in uh, 2020. <laughs> no, no. We, we just let the uh, our capitalist hellscape sort that one out for us. Americans received their first ration cards in May of 1942, and the first card, War Ration Card Number 1, became known as the Sugar Book for one of the commodities Americans could purchase with their ration card. Other ration cards developed as the war progressed, and ration cards included stamps with drawings of airplanes, guns, tanks, aircrafts, ears of wheat, and fruit, which were used to purchase rationed items. It's kind of cool, you know, that you could uh, have your collecting cards of... uh, War memorabilia for when you didn't get to buy sugar. Um, but alongside all of the groceries and things like that, the OPA rationed automobiles, tires, gasoline, fuel oil, coal, firewood, nylon, silk, and shoes. Uh, and Americans used their ration cards and stamp to take their meager shares of household staples, including meat, dairy, coffee, dried fruits, jams, jellies, large shortenings, and oils. And people were encouraged to grow their own vegetables in victory gardens so more of the regular crop share could feed troops overseas. Yeah, a little bit more, uh, I guess, solidarity in those days or forced solidarity. Um, Because everyone was just coming out of the Great Depression at this point where they were sort of rationing uh, because they couldn't afford to buy food and now they couldn't because they weren't legally allowed to do it or legally allowed to buy a significant portion of it because so much of the economy had to be dedicated towards shipping this stuff overseas to feed troops and other things. I would have loved to have seen the alternatives to victory gardens in that pitch meeting. (laughs) Defeat gardens? Just like, glory garden. No, we don't want alliteration here. Mm Mm-hmm. Like the freedom fries years. Jeans themselves were also subject to rationing. And most denim workwear was designated staple work clothing, which was a terminology that they used uh, to allow things to continue production. As if it was a, you know, unnecessary or, uh, quote unquote, frivolous type of piece of clothing, then they wouldn't allow you to keep making it. Um, as it was just like, eh, you don't need that. You can wait until the war's over to get your uh, taffeta, like box shorts. Um, we, but we'll let you have jeans. For this staple work clothing. Still, like costs and clothing construction details were regulated by the Office of Price Administration, both to ensure affordability and to conserve material for the war effort, which applied to jeans. Like Levi's, for example, had to make many alterations to the 501 gene. They could no longer stitch the arcs on the back pockets because it was not a structurally necessary detail. And uh, in response, they painted them on instead so consumers could still ID them as Levi's and not be confused as to why the arcs weren't on the back of their pants. Is that why the 1944 LVCs have the the painted on? I think the painted on arcuates. They also have the weird pocket bags. That is the one. Levi's 501s also lost the back cinch and the suspender buttons uh, to save metal and you know extra fabric there. The standard buttons were swapped for donut-style ones that used less metal. And they lost the crotch rivets and the rivets on the coin pocket. And a lot of people will tell you that the crotch rivet went away because cowboys burned their dicks on them at the campfire, which was not the case. The dick rivet or the crotch rivet went away 
because of World War II rationing, not because of heat transfer at campfires. That is an urban denim legend. I have I have heard that legend. Mm-hmm. We're we're here to dispel it. Here to dispel all harmful harmful rumors. Uh, they also used whatever fabric was available for the pocket bags, which, as you noted, um, was often like green herringbone twill uniform material because it was just whatever they were making a lot of. They were like, eh, that can be used as pocket bag material, whatever. And uh, jeans got skinnier. Because until this point, jeans were baggy, straight leg things. But slimmer jeans meant using less fabric and, you know, that could be used to make a Daisy May hat or other dungarees. And so the uh, leg opening dropped significantly between the pre-war and the uh, war-made jeans. And after the war was over, they brought back the arcs and the rivets on the coin pockets, but uh, many of the cutbacks stuck around and gave birth to the modern jean as we know it today. Is, uh, if you talk to you know, any denim head or any repro denim manufacturer, the 19... 19- 47 Levi's 501 is the granddaddy to pretty much all of them. It looking the way it does is almost entirely attributable to wartime rationing of the change between the pre-war and the post-war 1947 gene. The slim and shapely denim gene would make a splash in returning GIs who weren't ready to reintegrate back into post-war society, but we'll get to all that and more next time on part nine. Thank you very much for continuing to follow along with our story of denim history. Be sure to check out our surf and turf salmon leather wallets that are now available exclusively at shop.heddles.com. Not rationed. And you can get 10% off your order, as always, with the code blowout. If you like what you've been hearing, maybe drop us a review. And if you have any questions, comments, or whatever, read what is our email address. Is it blowout at heddles.com? Yes, it is. Once again, my name is David. I'm Reed. And catch you next week.